welcome everybody inside Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Coming up, we are talking about bad bosses and toxic co-workers mm. and how to handle them. It could be triggering to some, so I'm just <laughs> warning everybody. Anyone who has worked long hours will experience difficult people on the job, will get advice for what to do when you work with micromanagers, gaslighters, credit stealers, and free riders, Avi, in the office. Any of those. Uh, any of those people. We want to hear from you, your stories and suggestions about jerks at work. You can call us. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. No shortage of opinions. <laughs> exactly. On this topic. Um, also... Something we all have a lot of opinions about. Mm -hmm. The Phillies. First, first playoff game is tonight down in South Philly against the Marlins. And we have got Hitting Seasons John Stolness on the line standing by for a preview. And then later in the show, the autumn leaves are beginning to fall. Perhaps you've noticed. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about why the colors are changing and where you can catch the most beautiful displays. But first, our news roundup, Cherry, and a serious topic and a topic... Um, that we've all been thinking about a lot. Yeah, for sure. Fatal do overdoses among Philadelphians are at an all-time high right now. And while the number of white people ODing has decreased, the number of black and Hispanic Philadelphians who overdosed, well, that number has gone up significantly. Mm -hmm. We've had about 1,413 overdoses in 2022. Overwhelmingly, those deaths have been caused by opioids, mostly fentanyl. Yep. Um, but more than half involved opioids and a stimulant like Coke or meth. Now, but when you dig into the numbers, there's yep. lots of disparities. Avi, um, deaths among white residents went down 12%, but deaths among black Philadelphians nearly doubled in the past five years, and deaths among Hispanic Philadelphians up 43%. Yeah, um, not ambiguous data yeah. whatsoever. It shows that the, the face of this crisis is changing. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of potential implications for that, uh, including implications for uh, sort of how, how to solve, how to message. Um, and I also wonder a little bit if it will change at all the collective will to do something mm -hmm. about it. I mean, mm -hmm. what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I grew up on the heels of the crack epidemic, yeah, exactly. and there was a lot of it, people just ignored the crack epidemic yep. um, because of the people who were most impacted. And now that the opioid epidemic is could be shifting, um, who's most impacted? We hope that it won't change. I will say that the city is putting a plan together to deal with this. The overdose response team, they're going to go door to door later this month. They're going to hand out naloxone to as many residents as possible, not just to people who use drugs. And of course, some of the money for yeah. this outreach came from the big pharma settlement against the opioid company, $650,000 going to go to help fuel this. But um, this is still an ongoing problem. We have to all, it's something that affects us all, whether we want to believe it or not. Yep. Um, yep. And so it, it doesn't seem like it's going away, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I want to shift down to Southern Delaware now. Yeah. Um, where sea levels are rising. And more and more farmland mm -hmm. is turning into marshland. Very interesting new study out of the University of Delaware, written up at Delaware Online. They used aerial imaging to look yeah. at farmland that's near sort of um, brackish or salt water to see how much of that farmland over a period of six years 
had been kind of infected by salt visibly from mm-hmm. the air. You can mm-hmm. see this encroaching whiteness um, sort of uh, move through the landscape. Mm-hmm. And they found in this study that the number of areas through this aerial, aerial imaging that had the, the salt obvious to the eye had doubled over that period of time. Wow. And that is, we believe, attributable to climate change, rising sea levels, and more events that push salt water upstream and inland. Yeah, and I should mention the Delaware farmers, they are reliant on corn and soybean production. So when the soil gets salty, uh, the crop yield goes down significantly, yep. and it it's a huge economic loss in the tens of millions of dollars um, and 107 million, I think, in Delaware every single year. And it's going to continue to grow. Already. Yeah, already. I know. It's, And this is something that they used to be able to deal with, with ditches and all kinds of stuff. But the water has nowhere to go now. When you think about climate change yeah. and water, you often think about flooding. Mm-hmm. Because those visuals are so striking. The events are so you know immediate and acute when there is major flooding. Salt is like, I feel like the under-discussed part of this coming crisis. The salt line on the Delaware River is moving up toward Wilmington, toward Philadelphia Mm -hmm. because of sea level rise. Uh, We've seen similar things play out along the Mississippi River with New Orleans. And this is another example. More salt infects the land, makes it harder to use. And there is a recommendation in this report from the University of Delaware that eventually we may need to embrace these changes by allowing marshes to form instead of using that that land as farmland. And I'm not sure we're ready for that conversation yeah, yet. Yeah, because the shifts are happening. And what's crazy is that salt, this salt thing, it's invisible for a long time. And by the time you see it... Too late. Too late. Too um, late. Take us back up to Philadelphia now, Yeah, Jerry. we're going to come back up to Philly. Penn Museum will no longer exhibit any exposed human remains. There's a new policy where remains in vessels or wrapped like mummies will still be displayed with a warning sign. But all of this goes into effect as all of the museums in the country yeah. and across the world reckon with the ethics of owning and displaying human remains. We talked about that when we had the executive director of the Mütter Museum on the program. And they're talking about having human remains without the consent of the individuals and things like that. But you remember, I mean, Avi Penn Museum has been in the center of controversy for quite some time. They sure have. Remember, yep. they, 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 it was uncovered that they had remains from the 1985 move bombing victims from West Philly. Not on display. Not they, on display, they, but, but they, they had, had them the in their possession. Yes. Yes. Uh, and in 2021, that was in 2021, and it revealed that they had been in, were in the possession of the bones of one of the children that were killed in the bombing. So they, of course, reunited the remains with the family. But this has been part of an ongoing controversy at the Penn Museum. If you want to read more about what Penn Museum is doing specifically, Peter Crimmins has an article up at WHYY.org. Penn Museum Director Christopher Woods told WHYY that this is, quote, about prioritizing Mm -hmm. human dignity and the wishes of dissent communities. As you mentioned, Museums all over the world are, are looking at this issue. In the case of the Penn Museum, it's different than the Mütter because human yeah. remains were not like the center mm-hmm. piece of their collection. It's an archaeology museum. In fact, I was trying to remember where it, I, I, it wasn't in this specific piece, but I don't remember seeing much yeah. at all the Penn Museum. But 
the policy itself is still relevant and significant because it signals where museum culture is heading. And for, for a museum like the Mütter, that is the whole ballgame. It's not human remains, whether you want to call them remains or what, however you want to define them. Looking at human body parts is what the museum revolves around. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the questions for them are a little bit more... Uh, front and center, and we'll see what happens in we'll that case. We'll see what happens, but this is going to be an ongoing thing. I'm sure there will be other developments, and we'll probably talk about it again. Front and center, yeah. Hard transition now. Yes. To fat bears. Fat bears. I love it. <laughs> um, this is an annual thing. Mm-hmm. The Katmai National Park and Preserve runs a contest every year where you can vote for your favorite fat bear that lives... <laughs> I'm not making this up. I know, I, I know, but I didn't. I didn't. I don't I know, know. I didn't I know. pick this story. I'm not making this up. Uh-huh. Um, from today until October 10th, you can vote for your favorite fat bear that lives at this park in Alaska. Um, they have different names, uh-huh. and there are various controversies about past voting and people uh, ballot stuffing for their favorite bears. Uh, do you have a take on this? I just saw the part where they say you can watch them gorge on salmon. I did do that, and it you is know, fascinating. It's fascinating. Did you click on them, that link? I have not watched them gorge on this, but I, they eat like fat. forty salmon a day. Well, That's a lot of fat. salmon. They have to Man. get fat, right? Because then they hibernate. In oh the yeah, winter, I forgot so they need about, to, yeah, to store true. up the, the that fat is reserves. True. <laughs> so I guess they're okay. The bears. <laughs> no, of course not. Yes. I did note that one of the bears you can vote on is named Chunk. Which I like feels like name. putting its thumb on the scale a little mm-hmm. bit, like you how it's a fat bear competition, and you name one of them Chunk. I feel like you're directing everyone to vote for Chunk because you figure Chunk must be the chunkiest. Yeah, they should just they should have neutral names, just numbers or something. But I will say something that caught my eye was that there had been a scandal around ballot stuffing. Yeah, I mentioned and that. this Bear Week. I yeah, and then yeah, and then there's and it's very popular though, so there is a Fat Bear Junior contest. Long story Cubs. short, one of I our producers recently went to Alaska. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's why we're talking about And we about love fat bears, bears here. Um, so, one of the other things we love. Yes. The Phillies. Big burly human beings. Exactly. And tonight at 8, a lot of us will be in front of the TV to watch the Phillies in the playoffs for the second straight year. They're taking on the Marlins. Mm-hmm. It'll be an interesting matchup, Avi. And here to share his thoughts and postseason predictions is John Stolness, one of our favorite Philly fanatics. He's the co-host of the Billy Penn Hidden Season podcast. John, welcome back to Studio Two. Thanks for being here. You bet, guys. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me back. John, uh, any opinions on the fat bears? First of all, no, I'm kidding. Um, we had you on the program <laughs> earlier. I can give you a take on the fat bears if you want, but I don't know that it's learning. So. <laughs> no, no learning. We'll save that for <laughs> offline. Uh, John, we right. had you on the program earlier this year. The Phillies at that point had a pretty meh record. And you mm. told us at the time they had a lot of good players who simply weren't playing well. So what changed over the second half of the season? Did these, those good players just start kind of play into the back of the baseball card yeah they started playing well uh it started with uh citizens bank park giving a standing ovation for trey turner and that seemed to lift him up and it seemed to lift everybody else up and from august 1st on they hit more home runs than any other team in baseball except the braves they were tied with the braves for most home runs so we know that when this team is scoring runs, they're usually doing it with a lot of homers, and they blotted out the sun with home runs <laughs> over the last two months of the season. And that really kick-started 
what was their best two months of the season in, in August and September. And the rest of the team just kind of rode that wave. But all those guys who were struggling, struggling with their power, struggling to find consistency. So many of those guys figured it out in the season's final two months. And so now we are here with this wild card matchup. And John, a lot of folks, they kind of tune out in the regular season, but then they perk up when it's the playoffs. I'm one of those people. (laughs) Confession. (laughs) So uh, they're playing the Marlins. What What are the opportunities and challenges for this matchup? Well, the Phillies are heavy favorites coming into this series. The Marlins get into the playoffs with only 84 wins. They were six games worse than the Phillies, but... The Marlins took seven out of Mm. the 13 games they played against the Phillies this year. They were seven and six, so the Phillies lost the season series. That being said, the Phillies outscored the Marlins during the course of the offseason, during the course of the season in games in which they played each other by nine runs. And so it was kind of a, a, the Marlins won a lot of one run games, Mm. a lot of really close games against the Phillies. The games the Phillies won, they won by a wider margin most of the time. This Marlins team is young. It's their first time in the playoffs in 20 years in any full season. The last time they made it was in the pandemic shortened season. And they've got a lot of guys who have never been there before. They've got a first year rookie manager who has never been here before. And so if you look at experience, if you look at the roster, the Phillies are absolutely heavy favorites. The one thing the Marlins have going for them is they have good pitching. And specifically, they have good left-handed starting pitching, Mm -hmm. which worries you as a Phillies fan because... The Phillies, some of the Phillies' best hitters, Bryce Harper, Kyle Schwarber, Bryson Stott, these guys are all left-handed hitters, and it's tough to hit good left-handed pitching in some of these cases. So they present a unique matchup problem for the Phillies. All right, just about a minute left, John, real quick. Uh, The formula that the Phillies had last year that got them to the World Series, does this team have the ability to access that same formula for winning in the playoffs? They do, and I think they're better, actually, than last year's team. That doesn't mean they'll go as far, but they still have Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola as two really good starting pitchers at the top of the rotation. Nola has had his struggles, but it looks like he might be on the right track. Uh, They've got a better bullpen than last year, and the bullpen is an underrated part of what really drove them last year. The Mm. bullpen should be better. And the offense is returning so many of the same players, and those players have had better seasons than last year in most cases. So they are absolutely well set up perhaps as much as any team in baseball to go on a world series run and win it all this time. All right, real quick, John, yes or no. We win in this series against the Marlins. Yes. I think it's going to be sweaty palms, but yes. All right, there it is. He's on the record. That's John Stolness, uh, co-host of the hit and season podcast presented by WHYY's Billy Penn. So appreciate you, John. Hope to have you back talking about a world series matchup at some point later coming up next on studio Two. Jerks at work. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Already a ton of comments, but email studio2 at whyy.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio 2. I am Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi wolfman Errant. Before we start this segment, Cherry, I just want to say mm-hmm. how much I enjoy Aww. working with you. I enjoy working with you, You're too, a fabulous Avi. co-worker. Thank and you. And none of what I'm about to describe <laughs> applies to you or anyone on our team. All right. Disclaimer. <laughs> 
<laughs> but you might have worked with credit stealers, mm-hmm. gaslighters, free riders. These are just some of the categories our guest uses to describe the different types of jerks at work. And that is indeed the title of her book. Yeah, it may be triggering to some, but it doesn't matter if you're working in the office or remotely communicating in person or on email, Slack or Zoom. Guess what, y'all? Workplace troubles follow us around. But what are you supposed to do about it? Most of us, we just can't quit, right? Tessa West is a professor of psychology at NYU and the author of Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. Tessa, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks so much for having me. And we will field your questions about bad bosses and toxic coworkers. Call us. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. Tessa, I'm going to channel a really old school mindset when I ask you this first question. Some people might be thinking, wait a second, you're not supposed to like your boss. You're not supposed to be like friends with your coworkers. Is that true to some extent? Um, Or do some people with maybe an old school mindset have the wrong mindset about how the modern office works? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. We don't have to be friends with the people that we work with. We don't have to want to have lunch with them or, you know, have drinks with them after work or tell them about our relationship problems. But we should want to get along with them and not feel afraid um, of coming to work and wanting to hide under our desks or, Mm. you know, in the case of the boss, not knowing how to give them any kind of feedback, because chances are if they're a jerky boss, no one's really ever told them. So I think this whole idea of being friends with people at work isn't the solution either, but kind of learning clear communication with people that we might not actually want to be friends with is something that we should all try to be a little bit better at. So I want to draw some lines, Tessa, because there's a thing where, you know, you got to call HR because someone is doing something that is clearly against office policy, right? And then there's just somebody who's just a jerk. So let's try to define the where is the line of being you know, just someone who's just annoying versus someone who you need to ramp it up and call HR on? This is a really hard question. And I think HR doesn't even really know the answer to this. Mm. Having dealt with Mm. HR myself in the past, you think something's HR worthy and you go and complain and you say, I feel like I've been targeted, you know, for whatever reason. And they say, well, if the person was an equal opportunity jerk, then this really isn't our problem. Um, you, You know, you weren't actually unfairly targeted. So I think kind of turning to HR, assuming there actually are clear policies around what's acceptable behavior at work and what's not, is rarely actually something that we can do much about. Um, And there aren't a lot of rules around these things. So I think kind of using HR as you're out is your last resort. I think you want to use your social networks. You want to learn, you know, different kind of communication strategies before you turn to HR. And HR is really there for violating codified rules, policies on paper, discrimination based on class, race, gender, these kinds of things that are very black and white. But often what I found in my experience is they they back out of these kinds of things. Mm. And they say, look, I'm going to take this back to you. You need to work this out in your own workplace. Don't call us every time someone's mad or uncomfortable or feels ignored or feel like their credit was stolen or feel like they've been gaslit at work. We're not here for those kinds of things. Um, So they they tend to be like in a less helpful than people think they are often at work. So it's work it out amongst yourselves. So let's do that. (laughs) So let's do that. I want to bring in a clip from uh, the NBC show, The Office. And in this scene, Angela 
head of the office's party planning committee, tells Phyllis that she ordered the wrong supplies. Let's hear that interaction. I asked for assorted cutlery, and I got back spoons. These are worthless. I want to understand what you're saying, but it's difficult for me when you use that tone. Phyllis, these are spoons. Spoons have rounded tops and are used to scoop things. What we need are forks, which have prongs or tiny spears on top. Do you understand me now? Yes. Goody. All right, Professor (laughs) Tessa West. So clearly Phyllis is trying to have this conversation with Angela. It's not going well. What are the best ways to approach someone who's a coworker who you think is being a jerk? I think the first thing you have to remind yourself is it might seem very obvious to you that this person's a jerk, but it's not obvious to them. Most people don't want to be jerks. It actually hurts them more than it hurts you for them to be jerks. It prevents them from getting ahead. No one likes them. You know, they can't climb up at work. No one recommends them for raises and promotions. So first kind of dispel the myth that people are intentional jerks. I think Hmm. they're not trying to ruin your life. No one's told them that their behavior is disruptive. And, you know, people have a hard time believing this, but we are just not in a place where there's a culture of feedback around these things. We don't learn how to deliver it well. So kind of getting rid of that. And then when you do approach them, you have to be very careful to just focus on really specific behaviors that they did and not how you feel about them or not their intent or why they did it. It's very automatic for us to think of people in terms of how trustworthy they are, are smart or disruptive, um, you know, are loudmouthy or whatever. But you kind of have to leave those impressions out and just say, when you ordered spoons, it didn't work because, you know, as you can see in this email, I explicitly asked for forks instead of how come you never pay attention to anything? And, you know, you obviously don't care. Mm. <laughs> You're obviously not motivated to get things right. So as much as we want to kind of yell and scream at people, you have to really break things down into really specific behaviors and then ask them what they thought, too. And I think we don't often care about the perspectives of our jerks, but if they feel like it's a back and forth instead of a character assassination, they're actually much more likely to engage with you. And, you know, it's kind of like talking to your little kid when they do something. You want to get that threat down, get their heart rate down, get them to calm down a little and focus on the immediate right now. Um, And I'd say avoid doing what we see in marriages all the time, which is called kitchen sinking. You know, you you ordered spoons instead of forks, but you also never get anything right. And you broke the copy machine and you're always late and you look like a slob. You know, we do this to our spouses and we do it to people at work. Don't pile it on. Focus on the thing right in front of you right now. And if they try to bring in other stuff, push it away and say, like, can we just focus on this one thing in front of us right now? And so let's talk about some of the things, because um, Mm -hmm. let's get specific. There are some some recognized jerk like behavior that you have kind of identified that fall into categories. Can we just kind of talk about it? And before we do, I want to play this clip from, because this is one of the things that I don't like. Uh, this is from Mad, Mad Men. Um, boss Don Draper is taking credit for advertising copywriter Peggy's idea. Let's take a listen yeah. to that. It's your job. I give you money, you give me ideas. And you never say thank you. That's what the money is for. You're young, you will get your recognition. And honestly, it is absolutely ridiculous to be two years into your career and counting your ideas. Everything to you is an opportunity. And you should be thanking me every morning when you wake up, along with Jesus, for giving you another day. 
Jesus. Lord, right there, okay? <laughs> um, put Jesus in there. <laughs> Jesus. Come on, Don. This is a this is prayer worthy. So you get there, you know, and 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 stealing credit is top of my list. Um I try to give credit to folks where credit is due. So can you give us some, a list of some of the bad jerky things you you identified as causing problems in the workplace? Yeah, credit steal is right up there. And it's almost always your boss doing it, which was something that kind of surprised me when talking to people about this book. Um, Kiss Up, Kick Downer is a fun one. So this is that person who is just terrible to people who work at their level or beneath them, but the boss loves them and they actually are really good at their job. They know how to say the right things to the right people. So when you go to your boss to complain about this person, your boss looks at you like you're crazy and a little Mm. bit envious Mm. of them and says, come on, what are you talking about? They're great. And so that can be a real challenge, actually convincing someone in power to care. Um, The bulldozer is someone that we all got to know during the pandemic when our whole Zoom screen was just taken up by one giant face kind of screaming at us from the void. (laughs) Um, The person who takes over the meeting. But the really clever ones do more than that. They actually go behind the scenes and they tend to be fairly well connected. And they'll kind of, you know, sabotage things outside of your awareness. So, you know, I've been on searches for hiring new professors where a bulldozer will go up to a dean or someone with a lot of power and kill something. And no one really knows why we keep, you know, hitting our heads against the wall or ending votes in an impasse. And it's usually because a bulldozer has kind of gone around us and done those things. Um, free riders, also something everyone deals with at work. The the most difficult ones tend to be very charismatic and well-liked and they have all the office gossip and, you know, they can get the dinner reservations, but they just don't do their share of work and they kind of allocate it equally among everyone. So no one person can really feel, you know, totally take advantage of. And it takes groups a long time to realize this is happening. Um, micromanagers, we also are all, this is kind of the mm-hmm. most common form of management period, not bad management, just but just management. Um, you know, and I, and I actually feel for micromanagers because they tend to have been promoted because they were good at their old job, um, not managing. And you unfortunately now hold uh, that old job. Uh, and so they want to yeah. oversee you. And, you know, that's how they actually can feel effective. I can't let go. Um, and then- Yeah, it's a hard time to let go. And then we have neglectful bosses who ironically also tend to be micromanagers. They tend to go in and out of neglect and micromanagement. They disappear for months on end, show up at the very last minute, micromanage, and then disappear again. And you have no idea when they're going to come back and do it again. And so you have this like terrible reinforcement of micromanagement neglect back and forth and back and forth. Um, and then the gaslighter is my kind of favorite person to talk about because they're just in an, another place. They lie, but with the intent of kind of creating an alternative reality for people. And they do it very systematically. It's almost like a grooming process where they mm. cut you off socially. They make you feel special. So most people think of gaslighters as mean and abusive, but many of them are actually flattering and you feel like you're a part of something special and the abuse comes a little bit later Many of them have gotten their victims to do their dirty work. So it's very hard to kind of get yourself out of those relationships um, without doing some damage to yourself. And those are the ones that if you've ever had a gaslighter boss in 30 years, you're still talking about that person. They Mm. stay with you. They're in your dreams. You know, those are the people who trigger you right when we're having this conversation. (laughs) Yeah, everyone's like, I got one of them. I know that feeling. And it was like from 1974. But (laughs) that is the voice of Tessa West, a professor of psychology at NYU and author of Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers, and What to Do About Them. 
Give us a call if you have some thoughts on this topic, 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. I want to bring in a comment from Derek. Derek says the first thing to do is examine yourself. What contributions have you made or not made to this toxic environment? Then map out a plan on what you're able to do to correct yourself. Make sure you're doing your part to alleviate the bad situation. Which leads me to a question, Tessa. How do we know that we're not the jerks? Mm-hmm. This is my favorite topic. I wrote this book because I was the jerk. And I had this like very embarrassing reality Ooh. check on the subway system in New York City, where I realized I had kind of turned into some nightmare version of myself. So Derek, I love this. It's a great point. Most of us have an easy time pointing fingers, but don't like to look in the mirror. And I think the main thing you need to do if you suspect that you're a jerk is, first off, no one will tell you. It's uncomfortable, and chances are you don't work in a place where we can just kind of openly discuss work jerkery, especially telling someone. But you can ask people the kinds of questions I recommended earlier for actually how you talk to someone else who's a jerk, but you can kind of solicit information about yourself. You know, when I gave that presentation, did you feel like I gave you enough time to speak up or did you feel like maybe you didn't get a chance to speak up? You know, instead of saying, did I interrupt you the whole time, which pace you're going to probably get a bunch of, no, you're so great. We love working with you. Mm. And then they just talk about you behind your back. So focusing on those little behaviors you know, casting a really wide net, asking a lot of people who you work with, not just your immediate team, but people who you worked with in the past and in kind of different environments can really help you get a sense of what your Achilles heel is. And we all have them. There's something that triggers all of us to turn into a jerk, whether that's too much work or not enough sleep or, you know, disorganization coming from the top, whatever it is, learn your Achilles heel And, you know, work on strategies to prevent yourself from becoming a jerk when those triggers happen. You're not going to be able to prevent most of them because often they're things outside of your control. But what you can do is put steps in place so that you don't turn into that person when those things happen. And it just takes some planning and some organization and really kind of learning what is my weakness here? You know, when do I turn into the worst version of myself? Let's write that out. Let's document it over a few days figure out what those triggers are, and then build some behaviors around those things. And let me just read a couple of comments. We have a message from Cassandra who says, I actually had to leave my last position because my boss and owner of the company made it so toxic. He yelled at me in front of other employees for no reason. He heard my phone vibrate and he came screaming, thinking I was on my phone. It was insane. After I quit, his office manager left as well because he was screaming at him too. I didn't know what to do. That's from Cassandra. And then um, Bill says, It's tough, but sometimes you have to set boundaries and let people know if they've crossed it. There are always other jobs. A verbal rebuke in a tactful way can be effective. So let's talk about you being managing up because sometimes, you know, you're you're this is a boss. This boss is um, a tyrant, tyrant, a little bit disrespectful. You need this job. How do you manage up And, and, and set those boundaries and say what you need to say without losing your gig? Yeah, I think the first step that we often kind of misstep is going right to that manager. I like an up and over approach. So find mm. out who who among your manager's colleagues do you think you could talk to about the most effective ways of communicating with your manager? So find those people who work at the same level as your manager. I wouldn't go above their head quite yet, but other people who are at their level and say, look, I'm having some issues communicating. You know, there are some behaviors that I want to talk about that are sensitive. 
what do you think the best approach would be in talking to this person? And often it's their coworkers and colleagues that can kind of give you tips on what works and what doesn't. And they also have some insights into when this person is the worst version of themselves and when they're the kind of the best version. And one lesson I've learned a lot is that a lot of these managers who are acting like this are actually responding to their manager. So we sort of forget that our managers have managers, but often their behaviors are kind of directly reflected in what they're being asked to do. Mm. Um, kind of micromanagement, neglect, or crime examples of that. If your manager's being micromanaged, they're going to feel the need to micromanage. If they're being overworked, they're going to neglect you. So getting a lay of the land and kind of writing out a little map of what the relationships are like with other people and where they're being pushed and pulled can also help. So kind of think of them as someone who has relationships with a lot of people and you can go to those people and talk to them about these tips, but you can also understand where they're being triggered and where they're being pushed and what might be triggering them to yell at you. So perhaps it's the case that they're not yelling at you because of you. They're yelling at you because they just got yelled at three minutes ago. And there's a bit of a contagion of negativity going on at work. So taking yourself out of the equation, I think is a really important part of that process. Uh, Talking with Professor Tessa West about jerks at work and several comments Mm -hmm. are all bringing us back to human resources. HR, Tessa, I want to read an email from Matt. What should we do if we don't feel like HR has our back on an issue or we're worried about treatment after raising a concern? Jamie has an almost identical email. You talked before about how HR is not always necessarily helpful, but there still are going to be instances where you do want to go to HR. But if you have that feeling that HR isn't on your side, how do you approach that? Is it just, just, hey, trust the process, they're going to do their job? Or do you you find (laughs) another way around? Yeah, I think so. First principle is document, document, document. Everything Mm. that happens, write it down. Write write down mundane details that you don't think matter. Like the time of day it was, exactly what was said, almost like you're writing a story of the event. And part of this is for yourself because memories are fallible. You're going to forget details. And then like as time goes on, it's going to be really hard for you to go back and remember exactly what happened. You're going to rely on your impressions. You're going to say, well, this person disrespected me. That is not a credible complaint from an HR perspective. Behaviors are, feelings aren't. And so I think you want to document all these things kind of down to exactly what happened and when. And then I think you need to have some clarity around what the process is. So, you know, in my own experience dealing with, with HR, I wanted to know, are you going to act or are you going to not act? And what's your timeline for this? And can you tell me when you've made a decision around that? I think uncertainty is a huge part of this. When people don't know if HR is doing anything or not is when they kind of start panicking. But just having HR come back to me and say, no, I've decided to, to not act on this. I'm putting this back on you. You have to deal with it. Then I could make some decisions around, okay, I'm going to document these things. I'm going to come up with a communication plan with my manager and my boss. We're going to come up with a plan and there's going to be timelines and there's going to be benchmarks. And if we don't reach those, then it's almost just like, uh, you know, any kind of contract that expires, you know, kind of think of it that way. You know, let's have a conversation around what could change and when it needs to change by. And if those things are not achieved while I'm calm, you know, not in the moment, but while I'm feeling calm, then we're going to develop our next strategy. And this is something that marriage therapists do all the time with clients who are thinking of getting divorced. It's the same basic process, but you need to write these things out as goals with dates um, that you want them achieved by and not just kind of hypothetical, fix it at some point and force HR to give you clarity on the if and when. 
not on what they're doing behind the scenes, but if they're doing something and what their timeline is for doing those things. And then you'll get some clarity on whether they're going to actually help you. And by the way, shout out to Phil, who also says document, document, document. Literally <laughs> it, said the exact same, same thing. thing. Yeah. Keep things brief. Take your breaks, lunches, and use your time to replenish. That's some self-care there. Also, yeah. um, you know, people, uh, Galen says if someone's toxic behavior is affecting a person's environment at work and reducing your other's productivity it should be reported and let them decide how to deal with it if it's bothering you report it i want to talk about this nuclear option of hr because i mean if you report it to hr i mean it's like calling the 911 on your neighbor they're gonna get yeah. mad like even yeah. if you know and i know retaliation there's rules around that but you're gonna you still have to deal with these people so how do you deal with that i mean you know because because you're gonna have to deal with the um, aftermath of this reporting. So what is your advice on that topic? Because I, I feel like sometimes calling HR is the nuclear button. It is a nuclear button. And I, and I don't think people should learn about their own behavior from HR for the first time. I yeah. think it behooves bosses and managers to talk to people about their behaviors, you know, and give them an opportunity to change and work with them before we get to HR with the obvious exceptions of being like sexual harassment and mm -hmm. things like that. I, I do think often we are so conflict avoidant right now and it's so uncomfortable to confront that we would rather go behind someone's back and hit the nuclear button and tweet about them or make a TikTok about how mean they are or even just go to HR before having a conversation. And I, I think that one thing you can do to kind of get over that hump is if you have other people who can corroborate your story or other people who can sort of turn this into like a, a learning experience or other goals that we could achieve or clear communication as a group, it doesn't feel like a one-on-one -on -one or a he said, she said kind mm. of situation. Mm. So I feel like don't jump into HR because you're going to regret it. The person's going to find out and then they're going to feel disrespected. Why didn't you come to me first? Why did you go to HR before, you know, actually having a conversation? And the real answer is I don't like confrontation. It makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> and and, well, and that just isn't a great answer. <laughs> and let's talk about that as we wrap up one minute left. An email from David. This is going the opposite direction. My coworker is a bully. He becomes your friend so he can belittle you when he knows things about you. I've ignored him now for two mm. and a half years. Is that an okay approach? I don't know how else to handle it, but it's been working. And I got to be honest, I'm kind of in the David camp. So tell us maybe, I suppose, why we're wrong, Tessa, with about a minute left. I don't think you're wrong. I think some people you need to have distance from. I think the main question is, do you need to work with this person? Or can you actually work fairly independently from them? Mm. Where I would say you should change your strategy is if you're noticing this person doing this to other people. And most of us aren't great allies. We just say, not my problem. Don't want to be part of the solution. Don't want to be part of the problem. So kind of, you know, creating a norm around, you know, this person's behavior and discussing is important. But distance is important. And I think especially with stress contagion being in an all-time high right now, sometimes what you need is just a little bit of physical space from someone um, or a buffer, another other person in the room when you do have to interact keep your interactions with this person structured on task don't talk about your personal life only talk about what you need to and don't overshare no matter how much they try to pull you in mm. and then there you have a kind of distance but professional relationship with them and i just want to say one more comment before we go a comment from ta which is my approach smile and choose peace if you need to find a space where you thrive emotionally professionally or personally use your right of choice trust your discernment and show up a better version of you elsewhere like i i'm kind That's of like a, I, I i i vote for peace yes <laughs>
Yes, agreed. <laughs> Thank you so much. That is uh, Tessa West, professor of psychology at NYU and the author of Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. Really appreciate the time, Tessa. Thanks for joining us Thanks on Studio so Two. I learned something. I did. I did. Coming I did. up, we'll learn something else. The leaves are beginning to turn those gorgeous fall colors. We'll get the foliage forecast and tips on where to go for autumn's most beautiful views. Coming up next. I drank a little beer that evening, sang a little bit of these working man blues. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Avi wolfman Errett. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, don't you love it when the leaves are falling and fall is coming or here? <clears throat> yes. Okay. And I know you like pumpkin spice, so that's Why that's is fall. that in the script? I don't, I don't know. I why did someone assume that? I don't know. I don't know. It says, We've been eating it says, a lot of pumpkin spice candy. It says candies. here that Avi loves pumpkin spice. I have no idea where that misconception comes from. I uh, mean, I think it's okay. Okay. Well, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be a Scrooge. Okay. I just don't know where that's coming from. Well, there, well, but I do love fall. I do think it's the best weather of the year. It is the best weather. And guess what? Pennsylvania is a state with the longest and allegedly most diverse foliage season. So it's also a very beautiful time. It's of a the great year. place to enjoy fall. And a brand new foliage report is out. Now, our area hasn't seen any changes to its leaves yet. But the good news is, Mm -hmm. A, you could just drive up north for about three hours and get some of those Instagrammable moments already. And B, just wait, because the true beauty of fall down here in southeastern Pennsylvania is coming. And so we wanted to know a little more about what to expect this year, where those yellow and red colors come from, and even how climate change impacts the foliage. Ryan Reed is with us today to give us the rundown. He is the Natural Resource Program Specialist at the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. Ryan, welcome to Studio 2 and happy fall. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So, Ryan, what makes Pennsylvania distinct when it comes to foliage? Well, I think our main advantage is our species richness or diversity. When you look across the the mountains of Pennsylvania and the valleys, you find this extremely rich diversity of hardwood species, over 120 species of shrubs and trees that produce this wonderful array of fall colors. They're so beautiful. And so um, talk about what makes the leaves turn different colors, because I've already started to see them um, around. I live in a, a very wooded area. You see some yellow, orange, some purple, and then they all kind of turn brown. What causes this? Well, when you think about a deciduous tree and you think about the leaf life cycle, a leaf is really just an organ that's devoted to making energy. And, and so our deciduous trees are adapted to kind of know when it's no longer economical to invest in that process. Uh, generally speaking, the sun angle starting to diminish. Conditions can be very dry in the fall with the, the drier air. And so it's just not conducive for making energy and thus the the chlorophyll, that green pigment, tends to begin breaking down. 
and that reveals these other underlying pigments which produce those beautiful yellows oranges and reds which we are very fortunate to behold every fall and why do some take on the yellow shade and others the red and others the orange as they stop producing Mm -hmm. that green pigment well it really is about the nature of the underlying pigments i i could probably bore you with some (laughs) biochemistry and i'll throw a couple names out there Uh, xanthophyll for instance is the the yellow pigment Um, carotenoids produce a a, an orange and then uh, anthocyanins are responsible for those burgundy colors that we've uh, we can see in the oaks and other species that that show that color and is there like an evolutionary purpose to why some trees go different routes with that, or is it just kind of random? Well, certainly uh, just about every form that you see in nature, there's an underlying evolutionary function. And and so I've read quite a number of reports and research articles on the topic, and, and there is a little bit of disagreement. Um, let's say the jury's still out, but mm. uh, some pretty convincing um, research has shown that these pigments, uh, these colorful pigments, some of them are better at uh, helping the leaf to harvest energy in differing wavelengths of light. And then some of them actually confer a bit of protection to insects, uh, uh, herbivores that may eat those leaves. And so um, there, there seems to be two prongs to the general theory. And that is that it's an energy um, harvesting idea and or um, trying to protect from uh, herbivory, meaning the the attacks of, of insects. Interesting. Very interesting. So we've been talking about this warm summer across the country, not as bad in our region, um, but we've seen droughts followed by heavy rains. What does this mean for our trees and our foliage, this differing types of weather? Well, this year, I think that we're going to see a very beautiful fall foliage season. Uh, There's been nothing too extreme. Uh, We've teetered on the edge of of the drought watch across much of the state. And and I know that we're behind on annual rainfall, but this generally is not a problem in terms of the fall fall color. Our our leaves may come off a little sooner due to dryness. They may not uh, live as long, if you will. Um, You know, it might be a shorter lived season. But generally speaking, drier is always better than too wet. And that may be surprising to some of your listeners. Wow. That is a bit surprising. Um, tell us where you like to go to see the best foliage, maybe some hidden spots, a little off the beaten path. If folks are thinking about making a weekend trip in the next few weeks. Well, here's the thing about Pennsylvania. It's such a broad and diverse state. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of geography and we have literally millions of acres of, of public ground accessible to anyone in Pennsylvania, um, some, some within a very short drive or hike or bike ride. So that, that's one point I'd like to make is that we're extremely blessed to have that amount of public ground. And so as far as where I go, uh, wherever my outdoor pursuits take me, I, I'm an avid uh, outdoor recreationist. And so you'll find me hiking, biking, hunting, fishing, canoeing, wherever my pursuit is, that's where I go and enjoy the fall color. And that's probably one of the best pieces of advice I could give to listeners is to blend your fall foliage viewing with some other form of recreation. 
I feel that that makes it uh, that much more enjoyable. But if I had to say areas of the state that I, I certainly prefer, uh, I think that the, the Tioga County area is mm. just fantastic. It's breathtaking when you get into the, the Pine Creek Rail Trail and uh, in and around the town of Wellsboro. Um, there's, a, there's a special place all through there in the Tioga State Forest, um, in, just near the town that uh, is called Stony Fork. Um, that area is just uh, breathtaking. And that's up um, north central, right, Ryan? That's correct. Okay. And um, another place that, that I just think is fabulous during this time of the year is the central Appalachians throughout Bald mm. Eagle State Forest. Um, Bald, Eagle, Bald Eagle State Forest is one of our larger state forests, and there's at least 26 named vistas throughout the state forest network of roads where you can stop on a scenic drive and just sit and and enjoy the the beautiful colors in a panoramic sort of setting um further down to the southwest maybe you're thinking towards somewhere near pittsburgh um, there's the mount davis high point which is the highest point in pennsylvania at over three thousand feet wow. The area right now is awash in color because of the high altitude. It tends to get colder at night there. Yeah. And even though it's very far south in Pennsylvania, it's uh, it's a little further along in terms of the fall foliage progression. Yeah. Uh, there's there's just so many. It's so places. many, and I and I <laughs> want to jump in um, because we only have about a minute left in this segment. Sure. But um, what does as we wrap up? What is the timeline? And is there a sweet spot to get these best views? And we have like thirty seconds. Sure. I would I would tell any listener that you can't go wrong in Pennsylvania in the middle of October. Um, you know, this year, I would certainly say that will be accurate. I expect things to be right on schedule, historically speaking. All right. So mid-October till the third week of October, you can't go wrong. And if you're wondering more specifically, just check our fall foliage reports every Thursday. All righty. We will as we hear some Harvest Moon, I think, from Neil Young here. Yes. That is Ryan Reed, Natural Resource Program Specialist at the Pennsylvania Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. Ryan, thanks for joining us on Studio 2. You're welcome. Thank and you. thanks to Max for the tweet who says, thank you for this leaf segment for the nerds. For the nerds. We always we look always it do out. it for the nerds. <laughs> Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is the engineer for today's show. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, my name is Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much for joining us today.